politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our liberties. Those of you yearning for something new, not just the phony GOP relying upon failed policies and personnel to save us. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today, Thursday, July 22nd. Maybe it's July Tutu Day. Believe it or not, this is actually the day that Lincoln informed his cabinet of his intention to emancipate the slaves. So if we're going to celebrate every tranche of Emancipation Day rather than Emancipation Day itself, well, maybe July 22nd should be the day. But of course, the GOP bought into that line, that ridiculousness, that form of critical race theory, which is what it was, hook, line, and sinker. And they buy into COVID fascism, hook, line, and sinker. Later today, we're going to have on, very soon actually, Dr. Ryan Cole, our walking encyclopedia of COVID to answer all your questions on the latest trends, particularly about treatment, how it should be dealt with, what works, what doesn't work. But I just want to make one point before we bring him on. I'm watching Republicans and conservative commentators and the Fox News type of Republicans. And it's always interesting how they find their little safe space of what's a safe talking point to latch onto. And it's usually the talking point that you and I were discussing a year ago when it actually mattered and they refused to talk about it, thereby seeding the fight. And then when it no longer matters and we're on to new things, they're on to that. So their latest thing is they're holding press conferences, GOP House leadership, don't lock us down, open up the schools. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, we needed that a year ago, but you guys actually passed the legislation that funded and undergirded all of that. And now it's not really about that. It's more about coerced clot shots, forcing people to wear a mask if they don't get the clot shot, sometimes in many settings doing both, paying billions of dollars for faulty and downright harmful things like remdesivir rather than pushing cheap things that actually work those are the scandals. Those are the COVID talking points that need to be addressed. But instead, they're all like, you know, if people are vaccinated, they shouldn't have to wear a mask. That's not the science. I'm telling you, in five years from now, here's what America's going to look like. Democrats are going to say everyone has to get a sex change operation. And everyone, um, I don't know, everyone has to pledge allegiance to BLM. And Republicans will come and say, look, if we pledge allegiance to BLM, we shouldn't have to get a sex change operation. <laughs> that is the GOP in a nutshell. All these commentators. It's like, and, and right now the talking point is all about vaccine efficacy. That is their point. They're staking out in America all of it on the vaccine. In other countries, it's a variety of panic. Like, hey, I don't think the vaccines work. In America, it's all about the vaccines now. Very interesting. And the Republicans are pushing that talking point when really they should be talking about ivermectin, how to boost your immune system. And speaking of natural nutrients and vitamins, our sponsor today, Gainful, gives you the only real personalized nutrition system that's formulated for your body and exercise goals. For those of you who are looking for pre workout supplements. Um, they really give you peace of mind in terms of protein, hydration, and pre-workout supplementation. Uh, if you if you go to Gainville, it starts out with a five, Gainful, I say Gainville, it's not Florida, Gainful, a uh, five-minute quiz where it's very easy. They just ask you about your dietary needs, um, your weight, height, you know, the type of exercise you do, then they actually formulate and deliver to you supplements with no shipping charge every month based on that plan that they uh, work out for you. Their products are all formulated by their on-staff registered dietitians backed by pro-level exercise scientists on their science advisory board. Um, every Gainful customer gets complimentary one-on-one -on -one access to their own registered dietitian, so you could always ask questions um, rigorous quality control in all of their products 
And also they have zero artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners, which a lot of people obviously like. Start with your personalized fitness journey today with Gainful. Get $20 off your personalized supplements. Go to gainful.com slash conservative. That's G-A-I-N-F-U-L dot com slash conservative for $20 off. Gainful, again, that is your only personalized nutrition made for your tastes. All right, folks, so what I've noticed is very interesting. If you look in Israel, the UK, the narrative is all, look, you know, Delta is less virulent and the vaccines don't seem to work for it. And I have an entire article, very detailed article, explaining that using India, UK, and Israel to build that narrative, very strong evidence that it is not the vaccines that have decoupled deaths from cases. It is Mueller's ratchet, the attenuation of the mutations that have done that. Um, And India is not lying about their deaths, undercounting their deaths, because it's proven from Israel and the UK now, which are developed countries. But what's interesting is what we're finding there is, they're all saying in the UK they've been saying this I've, by the way, been watching this in the UK media for six weeks. Because remember, they're already over the curve. Started in India, UK is over it. Israel is is nearing the peak. We're behind. And they said all along that they noticed that the virus is very much like a cold now, not like a flu. Again, this is for the few people, excepting for the few people that still get that inflammatory reaction and the dangerous illness. But for most people, it's really a cold. And they don't even realize they have it. And yet, they have all the data at the same time that the vaccine isn't working. You go to America, and somehow the narrative is the opposite. No, no, no. Delta's the worst thing ever, and it's even roping in kids now. But the vaccines are 1,000% effective. And 170% of those that are hospitalized and die from it. Listen to the Steve Days show and see our podcast. Okay, that, that's their narrative. And if you think about it, it's so perfect because it's all built around the vaccine, right? That's why they have to rope in children because they're not, young children aren't, aren't vaccinated yet. Notice how whenever they need an anecdotal narrative and false news stories, it always comports Right exactly with the timing that they needed that premise. We have this fight over children in the country. That's where it is. Other countries, they're not really debating that now. You don't really find panic porn anywhere else at all. Oh, it's getting children because it's not. It's, it's less dangerous for adults than the ancestral strain of the virus was. And the vaccine is not working. In America, no, this thing is more dangerous, even to the point where kids are in danger. But the vaccines are impervious. Really, we're supposed to believe that. (laughs) It's just pathetic. But in comes these conservative commentators and Republicans, like, vaccines, you know, Mitch McConnell's lockdown or vaccine, or others that that are maybe less um, obnoxious about it. They're like, hey, you know, yeah, the vaccines are really working. You shouldn't have to wear a mask. If, you, if you're vaccinated, mind you, you shouldn't have to wear it anytime. They don't work anytime. But, of course, they can't speak the truth. It's just really funny. And, of course, CDC, remember we did an article yesterday of the list of retractions. That every time we have a talking point based on something, they retract it. So they retracted 50% of the deaths on VIRS. It was at 12,000. They rolled it back to 6,000. I think they're saying... They were foreign cases. They weren't domestic cases. Yeah, right. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a minute. But this is where we are with the acceptable position of GOP talking points. That's their safe space. Don't shut us down anymore. You don't have to wear a mask if you're vaccinated. Make sure you get vaccinated. Like, what? That's not the fight. The fight is that more and more we're finding it's less and less effective and more and more side effects, and they're pushing it on people, and they're lying and obfuscating data 
And meanwhile, this is a big thing I'm harping on. The states are getting billions of dollars from federal COVID funding, often greater than their entire general budget. What is that funding being spent on in Republican states? It's being spent on promoting these problematic clot shots rather than promoting vitamin D and nutrients and ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and all sorts of other things that Ryan Cole is going to talk to us about today. Where are their hearings on this? Nothing. They accept everything. Hook, line, and sinker. Hook, line, and sinker from the left. Just came out from Israel today. Out of the severely ill patients currently in hospitals, again, not large numbers because it's attenuated, but among the ones that are there, 56, uh, sorry, 46 fully vaccinated, 25 not vaccinated. Okay, so more than two-thirds are, or about two-thirds, are fully vaccinated. This is straight up from the Hebrew language source. This guy, Rain Israeli, R-A-N Israeli, on, on Twitter, if you want to follow him, he puts that out. That's where I got it from. Also, it's interesting when you look at CDC's own studies, they don't comport with their political messaging. So they just came out with a study, brand new, just published on the gamma, the gamma um, thing. You know, it's funny. After this is all said and done, the one governmental success in education in a generation will be teaching a generation of American children the Greek alphabet. That's the one thing they're good at. So they, they point out in their study... Natural immunity is far superior to vax, that people, people vaccinated during COVID-19's gamma variant mini outbreak in, um, this was in, was it in New Guinea? Where was this? Um, in, there were gold miners in French Guinea, French Guinea in Africa, African horn, Western horn. And basically zero had prior infection meaning zero of the people with prior infection were infected, but 24 of the 38 people that were vaccinated among the gold miners at 60%, they were all Pfizer, but they had no prior COVID-19 infection. They got the gamma variant. I believe that is the Brazilian variant. Very contagious, but again, no clinically severe cases Zero war hospitalized. So again, it mutates down. It's less of a problem to the extent you get it. It's natural infection of prior, natural immunity from prior infection that matters. The vaccine is garbage. And to the extent that some will still get it severely, you can't rely on the vaccine, but you can rely on ivermectin and numerous other things. And yet they are denying that. Now, speaking of these alternative censored treatments that actually work that the hospitals are not using that we should be talking about. I want to introduce our special guest today, Dr. Ryan Cole, Mayo Clinic trained anatomic and clinical pathologist from Idaho. He runs the largest independent lab in Idaho. Um, first, just before bringing him in, uh, this segment is sponsored by StartMail. Folks, you are being censored everywhere, and that includes your own emails. Don't believe that your Gmail, your Yahoo is private. No, it's not. Your business plans, medical records, social security numbers, whatever you put on there, including political strategizing as well, is is subject to um, not just government surveillance, but also just intrusive ads and pop-ups and phishing attacks. Startmail is really awesome. It's not based in the U.S., which is actually a good thing in this case because they are not subject to censorship. They have the highest standards of privacy. You could create unlimited number of aliases with your StartMail. Mine is Daniel Horowitz at StartMail.com, um, and I'm going to start using that more and more. It's, again, backed by the most stringent privacy laws in the world. And the, the key, again, is that they are not reliant on the servers like Amazon's that a lot of other big American companies are. And it is something that you'd be stupid to continue using spy mail. I don't trust spy mail. Neither should you. Use start mail. Go to startmail.com slash conservative. That start with a T at the end. 
com slash conservative to get 50% off your first year. Well, Dr. Cole, you've certainly been subject to censorship. All of us have. Thanks for joining us today. It's an honor to be here with you again, Daniel. Thank now, look, you. you've obviously listened to the show a lot. You've been on the show. You know we've covered a lot. I've always needed someone to explain some of these very complex concepts in, in um, you know, layman's terms. You've done a good job of that. I want to get to the treatments mainly today, but just to start off with a general overview of where the virus is now, um, is Delta really a thing or are there just hundreds of mutations and they're all kind of mutating at once? What are the trends you're seeing in terms of a proliferation of the virus, herd immunity thresholds, and efficacy of the vaccine? Yeah, so, you know, Delta, as, as we hear it in the news, in the media around the world, it's the, it's the latest craze and the latest variant. I still like to refer them to them as uh, the scariants. They're used to scare us, but really mostly they're samients. They're, it's still mostly, it's still SARS-CoV-2. It's still the same virus. Yes, there's a a little bit of a change in the shape of that spike protein. But in, in virology, over time, viruses acquire benevolent mutations. They become more benign. And I think that's what we, we technically are seeing with Delta. It's becoming more of just a, a bad common cold or a mild flu in most people. And, and so as much as uh, we, we hear the scare about it, we should actually be celebrating in a way in the sense that, yes, it spreads faster. Yes, it can replicate a little faster, but it, it appears to be actually technically, statistically where you can believe the data from around the world. I, I think we're getting some misinformation here in the States from our own our own reporting systems, but the, the death rate's lower. The hospitalizations they say they're going up, but really the, the end point that we want to look at, is it more deadly, yes or no? And it does not appear to be so. I'm not saying that there aren't individuals still at risk no matter what form the virus is in. There's still those individuals. Those are the ones we should have been guarding from the get-go a year and a half ago. And that's what I wanted to get into, the guarding of those individuals. All signs point to early treatment. Obviously, the masks didn't work. The lockdowns didn't work. The vaccines appear to the extent that they've ever worked. They've either worn off to a certain extent or um, they don't recognize the, the mutated players on the field like, like the T-cells from natural immunity and the, you know, the, the immune system that, that God created. But what does work is to actually see the cytokine storm coming a mile away. We know what could happen with vulnerable people. Um, in my mind, there's really four stages. There's um, long-term prophylaxis, long-term boosting your immune system with the supplements, nutrients, vitamins. There's you know prophylaxis of you know short-term. You think you're going to be exposed, like someone like yourself is always around the virus. So you know you want to take uh, some sort of prophylaxis of certain uh, drugs, like like a hydroxychloroquine or an ivermectin. There's the early treatment, right when you know you you've had it. And then there's for people that we let it and shouldn't really let it get to the hospitalization stage, there's treatments there. So far, the government has ignored the first three. It doesn't exist, not on their radar. And then when it comes to the fourth, hospitalization, inpatient treatment, they recommend two things, remdesivir and dexamethasone, and that is it. To this day, it has not changed in over a year. Um I want to work backwards. I want to talk about the hospitalization phase and then work backwards. What are you seeing about remdesivir and dexamethasone? Well, two things. So remdesivir, I, I know you had briefly mentioned the other day the study, that, the VA study on remdesivir, where it was actually showing prolongation of hospitalization We've known since remdesivir was under development in the lab animal models, remdesivir put about a quarter of those animals into kidney failure. So it, it is not a benign drug. I, there have been over 600 documented deaths from remdesivir alone in this last year. And remdesivir only has one brief mechanism of action, and that's this part of the virus called the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. That's, that's its focus. And, and if you don't get it on board early enough, 
And by the time most patients are in hospital, they're in the inflammatory stage of disease. So basically, you know, giving remdesivir when one finally arrives at the hospital is essentially like trying to pee on a forest fire mm-hmm. to put it out. I mean, not to be too crass, but that's kind of a good analogy. It's using the wrong modality at the wrong time. And at the same time, knowing that it can cause kidney damage, it can cause liver damage, you get the kidneys damaged, now you end up with extra fluid in the lungs. There's there's all sorts of adverse side effects. And, and it boggles my mind that... You know, smart doctors, and I, I've got a lot of smart colleagues around the world, but they keep on just using something that doesn't work and not looking at, you know, they're, they're following a protocol from the government, but the government tends to be about nine months behind on the data. And the data on this drug, gosh, on November 20th, 2020, after the solidarity trial, solidarity trial, the WHO said, look, remdesivir doesn't add any survival and it adds no benefit other than to the pocket of the pharmaceutical company. It is not an effective drug for this virus. So remdesivir, a very improper drug, mostly given at the wrong time in the hospital setting, um, no benefit and very expensive. Now to the dexamethasone, dexamethasone, it's a steroid, so it tunes down some inflammation. Traditionally, it's not a steroid used for pulmonary inflammation. There are much stronger, better steroids at much higher doses we should be using in a hospital setting to tune down that inflammatory stage. And again, to the point, when the patient's in the hospital, they've already gone through those first three stages you mentioned. They're now in that inflammatory stage of the disease. The virus is maximally copied. So our goal at that point is to calm the immune system. And when we're using certain drugs that really have a very anemic effect against the virus, again, we're, we're making a very poor choice for saving life. And, and we have much, much stronger, better options. And again, I scratch my head and I think, okay, these are smart clinicians, you know, many of my friends, many of my colleagues, but I don't know why they check their brain at the door when it comes to these much better modalities that we can be using. I mean, there's some brilliant physicians, the frontline um, critical care doctors, FLCCC.net, Dr. Corey, Dr. Merrick. These are the leaders in the field of critical care medicine. They've written the book in so many areas. They have protocols that are highly effective. And I've, I've had many patients approach me, help, what do I do? And I say, take these protocols uh, to the physician and then the doctors in the hospital, we only follow the NIH. We're not looking at anything, which is really um, almost criminal in the sense that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same result, that's obviously the definition of stupidity. It's it's mind boggling that they keep seeing a patient in front of them, put them on these inappropriate medications for inappropriate period, periods of time with just some oxygen and think that magically somehow they're going to start working at some point when we've known for months and months and months on end that most patients aren't responding um, in a good way to these medicines. There are much better treatments. And this is where being a real physician, a real clinician, involves thinking about the individual, the patient in front of you and thinking, okay, this isn't working. What else can I add? What what else is in my arsenal? What other anti-inflammatories can I use? What other steroid? What other modalities that other doctors around the country and world are using? You know, it, it, at the point, one has to drop their ego and pride and say, MD means make a difference. MD does not mean minor <laughs> deity, and it's not my word uh, or nothing else. You have to make that difference, and you have to be humble enough to say, I will learn from clinicians around the world, and I will save lives. That is our oath. What's scary about some doctors is it almost seems like junior high, there's a coolness factor. If the cool kids, the government puts something down on paper, that thing has the presumption of God, um, I would say until proven otherwise, but even when it is proven otherwise, whereas something that the cool kids aren't using. So it's all it almost becomes people that were supposed to be very scientifically driven. They're very group think. I mean, that's what we're seeing. And this is how you could have. I told you the other day the story about, you know, someone who was in his fourth week of covid um, long past the viral replication stage, sitting there um, with uh, oxygen on his face and they're like, you have to put on a mask on it. And then they yelled at him for wanting to get ivermectin while offering him nothing but but a ventilator. 
And uh, I was thinking, how could an infectious disease doctor think this viral replication when even I know there isn't at that stage? But it's like, that's the coolness factor. This is what we do. We have the remdesivir. We wear the masks. So what are some of these things that are looked on with snobbery that they're not so cool, but the emerging scientific evidence or just, you know, anecdotal evidence shows a lot of promise against the cytokine storm? We talked a lot about ivermectin. What else is out there? Yeah, well, ivermectin, to your point, is excellent against the, the cytokine response. Um, again, solumedrol can uh, tune down um, some of those cytokines as well. Um, you know, the, the one thing that's left out kind of in that early pre-hospital is the monoclonal antibodies. We don't hear a whole lot about that. The government spent a lot of money on these. And that's another thing early that can keep the patient out of the hospital and, and, and we don't hear that advertised. The, the patient doesn't know. Most doctors don't know. Uh, where do I go to get an infusion? You can get them right in the emergency room. So, you know, that's another one. In terms of, of calming that cytokine response, um, I mean, there is one other drug, but it's, you know, again, pseudoanemic, and that's um, um, tocilizumab, which they do use in hospital from time to time. But, again, it, it got approved after only 400 patients in one small trial. And uh, it, interestingly, in, in other countries, say South Africa, I was on the phone with a physician out of uh, South Africa. They're actually using a, a colloidal silver, um, and the colloidal silver is taking patients with an oxygen in the 70 up into the 90s within like six to seven hours. But in addition to that, the colloidal silver will actually inhibit and bind one of the inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-6. So, again, these are the kind of things, you know, one of the best things in modern medicine is, is observation of what's working in the hands of other clinicians. And we hear the excuse from our government, we need a randomized control placebo trial of 50,000 people, et cetera. In the middle of a pandemic, you don't. You just say, what's working? It's a battle. Let's grab the weapon that's fallen on the field and use it to keep Which is what the they said with remdesivir, so the vaccines, and dexamethasone. That's the irony. That's the standard they applied, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and what they're not realizing is those are empty weapons. <laughs> you know, the, the, the magazine is spent. There's nothing left to fire from those. So it's time to grab a different weapon off the battlefield and keep fighting the battle. So let's discuss some of those weapons. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk about a very good response to inhaled budesonide through a nebulizer. Can you describe yes. that a little bit? Okay, yeah, and this, this again, this is a, a, a brain scratcher. You think to yourself, you know, Dr. Stephen Bartlett out of Texas last year, I don't know, nine, ten months ago, he was using it in the emergency room where he works and was noticing how quickly the patients were recovering from their pulmonary symptoms. And he did a little video on it, went viral, five, six million views. Of course, he got removed for speaking something against the powers that be from around the world. And ironically, six, seven months later, Oxford did a trial and said, hey, guess what? Inhaled nebulized budesonide has a fantastic effect against the COVID pulmonary symptoms. Well, the, the irony is in this hospital setting, um, for the most part, nebulizations this last year have gone away. They, they say, oh, you know, there's too many droplets. We don't, want to, we don't want to aerosolize the virus by giving a nebulization which we've known for over a year, those of us who are thinking uh, physicians, that this is a, an aerosolized virus, not a droplet virus. So if a patient is sitting in an ICU room breathing, period, that room is full of virus no matter what. So budesonide, to, to withhold this from a patient, budesonide is a steroid. You inhale it into the lungs. Now those droplets of steroids go right to the area where the inflammation is. It sits on top of those little air sacs where the inflammation is and tunes it down. So nebulized budesonide attacks at the point of viral attack and inflammatory attack. So it's a wonderful agent. I've, I've seen countless patients turn the corner so quickly and their breathing turns around, their oxygen saturations go up. It's such a cheap, generic, simple <laughs> way to improve the pulmonary status of these patients. And again, the hospitals, I've, I've argued with physicians and ICs all around the country on behalf of patients saying, hey, look, this works. I've seen it work countless times. So I have countless of my colleagues around the world. 
and deaf ears. I, I don't understand the recalcitrance to something that's so effective. And, and I think this is really the biggest scandal of COVID. And even a lot of people on our side aren't talking about it enough because this is the most revealing. See, if you're COVID all day and all night, which they claim to be, then my my gosh, you would be the biggest hawk on treatment. That's going to be your thing. But instead, no, nothing, nothing. And that's what people need to understand. It's not about hydroxychloroquine. It wasn't. And then it wasn't about ivermectin. It's about that they oppose every form of effective cheap treatment, and they have no plans to explore, test, fund, run trials on their own versions of it, unless it's something that is extremely expensive. Um, but then even some of the expensive stuff, like the monoclonal antibodies, even then, like you noted, they're not so into it, which which reveals a pretty dark motivation in my mind that it's, it's even worse than cronyism. They really don't want people to to get through this, which is very scary. So we, we, we've talked about some things at the critical care stage, but obviously the key is we, you shouldn't get there. The key is that if we're going to have so many testing tests available and we're going to have all this mass testing, so you have the benefit of catching this early. So I want to know, and, and, and this is what so many people want to know. Um, for most people, it is going to be a cold now. But there are people, especially I get people that say they have um, kidney disease, they have heart disease, or, you know, there are still men in particular in their upper middle age and certainly older, even without those symptoms, that they'll probably survive, but they can get a bad cytokine storm. And why not avoid that? So someone comes to Dr. Cole and is like, let's start with a guy that doesn't have too many conditions, um, male in his... A 60-year-old male, look, I might get through this, but I don't want to roll the dice. I'm starting to get a sore throat. I tested positive. Dr. Cole, what should I do? Yeah, so the the confirmatory test, we know he has COVID, starting to get a few symptoms. The first thing I'm going to do is try to inhibit the viral replication. Um, we know that ivermectin has over 20 mechanisms of action. Half of those are antiviral. The other half are are immune modulatory. So that would be you know, one of my, my first prong approaches. Um, if he is getting into any respiratory symptoms whatsoever, yes, I'm going to put that inhaled or nebulized budesonide on board as well. If he's got some of the aches and pains, um, to your point that you asked earlier, another cytokine blocker is the medication fluvoxamine, which is you know traditionally... Um, Traditionally, uh, antidepressant, but um, interestingly, um, as an SSRI inhibitor, uh, your platelets actually have, um, it, it'll actually inhibit clotting with your platelets, but it also tunes down uh, cytokines uh, in the brain. So some of the brain fog symptoms, it will tune down some of those brain fog symptoms as well. So there are a bunch of early things. Now, I don't give steroids at the beginning, um, oral steroids. The reason being, if you give steroids too early, you give the virus a chance to replicate even more by suppressing the immune response ah. a little too much. So everything is kind of a stepwise progression. So, you know, as I talk to some of my colleagues around the country and I look at some of the studies out of Zimbabwe and South Africa, you usually wait till about day seven before you put those steroids on board. And that's when you know that the virus is maximally replicated. You, you, I mean, with the Delta, maybe as early as day five or six, now that we know it's replicating faster than the Wuhan and the other strains. So, you know, it, it's clinical prudence based on the appearance of the patient in front of you. But th those would be the standard things. And if the patient says after a day, hey, I'm not responding to this, like with HIV, you don't say, okay, here's one pill, good luck with your HIV. It's a virus. It's a multi-drug approach. Well, same thing. And, and Dr. McCullough and his protocols and the FLCCC and their protocols, there are multiple layers of drugs you can throw on because everybody's an individual and they may symptomatically progress differently than another individual. But you have to sure. look at that whole arsenal and, and then you add one here, you add one there. And, and certain men... And as you've mentioned, um, older men tend to do worse, and it's an it's a androgen, a testosterone difference as to why men and women do better or worse. And so there's actually some testosterone blockers that have shown some effect around the world in certain studies as well. So again, you, you analyze the patient one by one, and you say, okay, it's this, 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 and if they report in a day or two, hey, I'm doing great. Well, wonderful. What you've done has worked. If, if 
not, then you add in the next thing. And, and that's what, that's what I, I implore my colleagues to do. That we, you know, fear, suffering, and vaccine is what we've been fed for a year. What we need is hope, early treatment, and normalcy. Yeah. And, and we have the opportunity to do that because we can't keep chasing the virus with the next vaccine, the next booster. By the time we have a booster made for Delta, we're going to be on, you know, Omega or Zeta. Who knows? Because there, there are literally thousands, thousands of variants of, of the virus. We don't hear this in the media, but if you go to the website nextstrain.org, it gives you the family tree of how many thousands mm. of variants there are of this virus circulating. Most of them are not that viable. We hear about the ones that tend to spread and are viable, but you can't chase 2,000 variations of a virus with a shot. Your only option to get us out of this pandemic is to focus on early treatments and and walk away from the therapeutic nihilism of the NIH. Therapeutic nihilism. Wow, that that that's the truth. Um, and again, folks, I mean, I want you guys to know. Obviously, this is not official medical device. We're speaking uh, medical advice. We're, we're speaking academically here. But this is just to educate you, so you could bring some of this stuff stuff up with your ph- physician. That's why I'm trying to get specific. So, so to take this discussion further. Um, you talk about antiviral, anti-inflammatories. What about antibiotics, uh, azithromycin, doxycycline? When and do you prescribe those? At what stages? Are do you, do both of them? One of them? What, what's your protocol? You know, knowing that this is a, a viral process, and it tends to be more of a clotting disease than a true pneumonia. What you see in the lungs on the X-ray that or ground glass, that appearance that one sees, that's clotting and fibrosis of the air sacs. So that's not necessarily a bacterial pneumonia. I, I am one that doesn't like to overuse mm. antibiotics and, and mess up the microbiome because, you know, a, another very important in that very pre-stage that you mentioned, you know, you know, having your vitamin D levels normal, having your body weight normal, getting enough rest, those kind of things. Your microbiome plays a critical role in how your immune system responds. So goes the gut, so goes the rest of your body, basically. And I I have a lot of data from a colleague in California that's on the cutting edge of this with COVID. But anyway, so I'm hesitant with antibiotics. uh, Azithromycin, it does act on the 50S ribosomal subunit. It, It does have some antiviral effects, as does doxycycline, I think. Um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine have a stronger effect. There's maybe a slight synergy in using mm. both of those. But again, I, I do I do slightly worry, unless you have like a very immune compromised patient or a diabetic or, or a cancer patient or someone that may very easily get a superimposed secondarily bacterial mm. pneumonia. You know, those are the patients you might want to consider doing that in. But I, I'm a little more hesitant. Yeah. Uh, with the antibiotics, and, and I'm not right, I'm not wrong. It's in our scenario where you have a guy that hasn't been prone to always get the bacterial pneumonias, kind of a healthy guy, but again, that that lower bounds of, of where males seem to get roped into these cytokine storms sometimes, and you catch it early, you're saying you go with the, the ivermectin um, and things like that, that should take care of it without having to get into antibiotics. Um, let me, you know, in our remaining time, I just, again, I'm going in sequence. I'm backing it up now a little bit more. Okay, so preemptively, <laughs> prophylaxis, um, you know, let's say you are the type that, you know, look, I don't want to take a risk on the shots, but I got kidney disease, I got heart disease, I got diabetes, um, guy in his 60s, let's say a male, and he sees that in his area it is circulating again and the virus does seem to be circulating um or he feels he has been exposed might be exposed or talk about yourself um a healthcare worker and you're constantly exposed to it and you don't appear to have gotten it what's the secret sauce for that well, the secret sauce for me a year ago I was on hydroxychloroquine uh once a week and I was swabbing literally thousands of sick patients yeah, every month, face-to-face with them. Yes, I had some PPE on, but, you know, I, I was coughed on, sneezed on, boogered on, you name it, slobbered on by little kids, et cetera. I, I was exposed to a lot of virus. Um, hydroxychloroquine in a lot of patients seems to be a very good prophylaxis. 
with zinc. You know, hydroxy is the the gun, zinc is the bullet. So if you're not taking it with zinc, zinc is really what inhibits the viral mm. replication. Um, hydroxy has some other effects on the cell and the lysosomes and whatnot and the pH. But so anyway, that worked for me for a lot of time. And then when I saw the data from Argentina, Dr. Carvalho, and I think I've mentioned this study, he put 800 healthcare workers on ivermectin once a week for um, two months during their first wave. And out of 800 workers on ivermectin once a week, zero got COVID. In his placebo group of 400 individual healthcare workers, 58% of those individuals got COVID. So that was pretty compelling data. So I switched to that. And then um, my brother was the first patient whose life I saved with ivermectin. Uh, he's an obese type 1 diabetic. And he turned the corner from oxygen stats in the 80s up into the high 90s in 24 hours. Um, so I saw the early effects of ivermectin. So a guy like me, exposed constantly, healthcare worker, one might want to consider ivermectin. Um, there are obviously telehealth groups online where people can get it. If your doctor is going to argue with you, there are doctors all around the country that will take care of you. I, I don't recommend people in a low pressure setting. I, I'm not one to say just take a drug because you're anxious or worried. To have it on yes. hand may be a good idea at first sign of symptoms, and then you test and say, okay, I'm positive, boom, I have treatment available immediately, test and treat, test and treat, test and treat. So, you know, it, again, it depends on the, the setting one is in. For one, in a high pressure, a high spreading rate of virus, then, you know, maybe it it would be okay. Um, I Again, my microbiome colleague out of California is going to tell me, only take it when you need it because it's going to boost your microbiome for a couple of days, but then it can mm. lower it. So you you don't want to overdo medications if you don't need to. And, and to your point, too, you know, what else do I do? Well, obviously, I try to take care of what I do and don't eat. I try to eat a, a low inflammatory diet. I don't eat sugar. I eat very few carbohydrates. I try to sleep as much as I can when I get the chance. I try to keep my body in motion, um, you know, try to physically take care of my health. Yes, I take my vitamin D, my vitamin C, my zinc, my selenium, my N-acetylcysteine, et cetera. So I have a whole protocol of things I take just to make sure my immune system's optimized upon exposure, not just to COVID, but to any illness. I want to be able to get over any illness quickly. But how do you keep track of all that? I'm, I'm seeing all, like you said, the folic acid and the iron, selenium, zinc, A, C, D, B, B2, B6, whatever. There's a lot out there. What, what are, <laughs> I mean, are there some like re good products out there that, you know, pack a punch that have, have good mixtures in them? You know, I, I'll be honest, I cobble mine together. I have my morning vitamin box and, and my nighttime pill box. And I just, you know, I look for high quality ones. I sell nothing. I have, I've sold nothing during COVID. I mean, my, my only goal here is to help humanity. I, I literally have nothing to sell. So um, I know some of my colleagues have some very pure ones that they get. You know, they try to avoid buying them from overseas because, you know, they've tested the purity of them. So you know, I don't have any company to list per se, um, but I know there's some very reputable stateside ones where they do pharmaceutical grade in terms of triple testing, purity and, and whatnot. So, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, it, it, it's not the easiest thing to do until you do sit down and spend a Saturday morning, commit sure. to it and you go, OK, here's the main ones I want to take. I don't need to take 50 pills a day, but if I take, you know, five or six supplements and again, you know, the better you can eat, the more healthfully you can eat and a more balanced diet, you can get a lot of it from your diet alone. Um, a lot you can't, though. I mean, there, we have certain, especially magnesium and vitamin D, very deficient in those in our country. And those are two of the main, you know, mineral and vitamin factors that contribute to worse disease. And that there's plenty of data that have correlated that. Sure, sure. No, I mean, and, and, and then also just some concerns that have been, um, raised, if, you, if you're into zinc, and zinc really seems to be God's wonder, but on the other hand, does it deplete your copper levels, and is that a problem, and is there something yes. that counterbalances that? Yeah, yeah, so I, I do about 30 milligrams of zinc with one milligram of copper, um, just trace amounts of copper. You don't need too much, but you need it for certain enzymatic reactions in your body, um, and, and, you know, we've heard a lot about zinc. Zinc can be very upsetting to the stomach in a lot of patients. You don't need, 
You don't need a ton of zinc. It's very important for T cell activity and mate immunity. It's very important for a lot of immune functions. But again, this whole concept of moderation and not excess. Now, when I when I have a patient that gets sick, I'll increase their zinc amount during the period in which they're ill. Sure. But I again, I like small trace amounts. Try to keep the body in balance. Homeostasis, not too much, not too little. Uh, the Goldilocks effect. So, so you you know taking we have this misconception, I think, a lot in, in the states here, you know, little is good, a lot is better. That's not always the case. So I think moderation in all things, but it's still just having that body in balance and just making sure you're getting But doesn't enough. this really start with knowing where you are, where, you, where your levels are? Like I have a yes. lot of, again, you know, conservative crowd, a lot of older people. And they're they're in a quandary. This is a genetically modified virus that is a bioweapon. It is problematic to some people. You don't you never know who potentially, but we know the rough age group. But you know some have an easy time with it. Some have a hard time with it, and they're rightfully very concerned about what they're hearing about the vaccines. So to me, it makes sense to get a blood panel. What would you recommend they check out? Okay, so the, the basic ones to know are your complete blood count and what's your white cell count? How, how is your red cell count? Are you, you know, knowing your iron, are you anemic? Because the more anemic you are, the more predisposed you are to disease. I like getting a complete metabolic panel that tells you how your liver function is doing, what your different electrolytes look like in balance in your body. I, I think everybody in North America should get a vitamin D test twice a year. And to get a magnesium test once a year is not a bad idea, especially in women, um, because the lower your magnesium, the more osteoporotic you can be as well. And then I like doing um, a couple inflammatory markers. One I particularly like is C-reactive protein. And so goes your C-reactive protein. It tells you the underlying inflammatory state of your body. And if you go into any infection or a viral infection like COVID, already in an inflammatory state, um, that kind of predisposes you to a worse course of illness. So it, it, I think knowing that, then there are things you can do to shift your inflammatory state. Some of those same things I talked about earlier, you know, changing your diet, watching your weight, moving your body, getting adequate sleep is one of the best things to boost your innate immune response. Um, the, the more adequate rest you get, the stickier your white blood cells are. They can talk to each other better. But if you don't get adequate sleep, your cortisol goes up, your white blood cells can't communicate with each other as easily. So there's just so many basic things. But those are some of the basic blood panels I would look at. Are they expensive? Not, not excessively. Um, insurance will cover most of those on a well visit, especially for the elderly patients. Sure. So it's good to know. And then you, you can take and make a plan from there with your doctor. You know, he or she can sit down with you and say, okay, let's, let's work on this or let's fix this or let's change this. Let's Assuming they don't health. roll their eyes at you. And I, and I think this is really where um, you guys need to help. And I know you guys are. Um, what's the website again that people could go to? Uh, the the protocol no, for, for, for well for, for uh, telehealth where people could – Discuss this. Oh, oh, yeah, certainly. Um, there's myfreedoctor.com. That's a group of wonderful physicians that believe in early treatment and prevention. And, you know, their job is to get you over COVID quickly and keep you out of the hospital. Um, you know, I've so far, knock on wood, kept 170 out of 170 patients out of the hospital, you know, treating early for COVID. And we're talking 50% of that has been a very high risk uh, cohort. But yeah, there's some brilliant physicians there. I think uh, there's another group, uh, Speak with an MD. There's America's Frontline Doctors. You know, I, I've consulted quite a bit with MyFreeDoctor.com, and, and literally it's free. I mean, they do work on a donation mm. service, and, you know, if you can donate, it helps, and it helps the team stay together and yes. helps uh, basically the support staff, et cetera. So it's literally free, but if you're willing to donate, it helps us serve a lot of other people around the country that are less I fortunate. can't recommend so it it's, it's a pretty enough. cool concept. It, yeah, it's really a cool concept because it's really shifting the paradigm of medicine away from these big, giant corporate systems. And it's a, a level of care that's direct to the patient with caring physicians that have your yeah, help. We need mind. to do that because I, I cannot relate to these doctors. And it's the majority of them. They're like, oh, my God, COVID. I got to put a mask on a crying three-year-old. And then I'm like, wow, you care that much right. about COVID. 
so you're really going to care about the science of it, right? No. Ah, ho-hum, vitamin D. Yeah, I got a 70-year-old patient. No need to check these levels. No, I mean, you should be putting out, um, you know, monthly updates to your caseload, your patients, and telling them, hey, if you're in this thing, you should get these blood panels, get these levels checked. Here's what I advise. Everything you're doing, but people aren't getting that. And and this is a very big problem. I'm very worried about a lot of people, people in this audience. And, um, you know, you've been a godsend with this. So, so, you know, folks, th- this is definitely something you want to look into. Let me know your questions. We're almost out of time. Um, one of the things I, I think you guys need to do, I know you're flying around meeting with other doctors. Uh, there needs to be um, some sort of list put out about hospitals, where people could go, mm-hmm. that, that they're open to, to yeah. science. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to work on that with my colleagues this weekend. Um, literally had a patient here where that doctor, you know, no soup for you, no soup, you know, the sign fell down. So, yeah, no treatment for you. You know, you're just going to sit here in my hospital and die because I follow the NIH. Um, and and the wife was calling me. Where where is one of these hospitals that will do the more advanced protocols? And the closest one we could find was down in Texas. Jeez. And she literally had a husband and a son in hospital dying because of of insufficient treatment. So I'm, I'm going to work on that with some of my colleagues this weekend so we can publish more widely. We need to support those systems that are actually forward thinking, that are actually in it to save your life, not in it for, you know, yep. the government. And the Department uh, of Health, I mean, the money. Idaho Department of Health, they should not be paying for this with a lot of the state funding, federal funding. They should not be paying for ineffective treatments. There's a lot of government funding that is that is incentivizing or disincentivizing certain things. I don't see why in a red state that can't be leveraged in a way that's different than what HHS is doing. So that's certainly something I think we want to talk about. Um, just want to go back to before we sign off here, just the the viral the epidemiology of what's going on. Um, you know, one of the things that I think. I noticed from day one is that the virus seemed to go and then hit a brick wall at 20%. And then it went and it hit a brick wall mm-hmm. at 40%. Why does it that it seems, mm-hmm. why does it work in a way that it seems like it stops and then it kind of fooled us to thinking the herd immunity threshold was lower? But you look at the seroprevalence in India, it's pretty high there. Do you think ultimately this is going to go the distance that pretty much everyone's going to have to be exposed to it? You know, that's a tough question. I still think there's going to be a set percentage of us that never get it because of cross immunity to old Mm. coronaviruses. So I think some of us just have that T cell memory from other exposure to common cold viruses where our immune system will just always keep it at bay. Um, I I early on thought, yeah, 20% based on the Diamond Princess USS Roosevelt, I thought 20% was going to be the penetrance and that it was going to stop. You know, in certain areas, obviously, I was wrong. And, you know, that's one of the most important things in medicine is to be able to say, hey, look, I saw it this way. I was wrong. I learned. And we're always learning. So I, the honest answer at this point is I don't know. Um, I, I do think it's becoming a less dangerous virus. So I do think we should be less scared. I still think we should take care of our health and be vigilant. But at the same time, I think we do follow the data and go, okay, is this the same virus? It's the same virus. It's weaker great. That's good news. And we should be celebrating the the good news instead of panicking people about, oh, no, oh, no, here it is. Mask up. Everybody hide. Stay away from each other. No. Hope, early treatment, back to normal. So obviously we've given people an alternative, something to latch on to. I do get a lot of emails from people that regret having gotten the shots. They're very concerned about it. Uh, interesting questions that's that's arisen is that if a lot of these protocols that we talk about, whether it's ivermectin and zinc, that seem to work against the effects of the spike protein of the virus, and they're concerned about the spike protein of the vaccine being a toxin, is there any hypothesis of somewhat trying to reverse or ameliorate potential side effects of the vaccine? through some of these uh, therapeutics? Yes. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. So the, the good news is 
some people get the shot and have no problem with it. And, and that's probably a fair majority. The, the sad part is there's a huge amount of damage we're seeing and death. And you've reported on this. It, it's it's mind boggling, mind bogglingly high. The amount of damage this vaccine has done within a population. We've, we've let it keep rolling forward, knowing that the spike protein is a toxin to your point, the spike protein that these vaccines make causes disease. Well, in some of these patients who post-vaccination do have um, persistent, we call it persistent spike disease, and it's kind of that cytokine trickle instead of a storm after the shot, there are some of these similar medications or same medications, and and again, to the credit of Dr. Corey, Dr. Bean, um, Dr. Merrick, you know, they've come up with some pretty phenomenal protocols for ameliorating these uh, post-vaccination side effects or injuries. Is it 100% effective? No. Um, in, in my hands, I've seen it work in about 80% of patients. And it's great to hear those stories from, you know, take, for example, you know, just one of the little annoying ones, you know, some of these patients will have the brain fog or the aches and the pains after the shot. And with a little fluvoxamine and a, a pulse of ivermectin, one gal in New York calls me a week later, said, I'm 80% better. I'm going back to work. So there, there are things, there are immune mechanisms you can do with many, many protocols and many medications that can reverse the course of some of these injuries, thank goodness. And, and so, again, this is just part of being a good physician is watching what others are doing, watch things evolve, apply it from your observational point of view, and if it works, wonderful. And if not, you look at the next best thing out there and you look at whatever whatever else somebody else is having success with. You just don't sit back and say, well, sit back and suffer. The government says we got nothing for you, even in that post-vaccine injury uh, scenario. Now, the ones that, who are concerned about, well, I got the shot and I have the antibody now, all I can say is, well, I hope that antibody is a good antibody. And I hope the things that we talk about, about, enhance reactions down the road. I hope I'm wrong. I hope sure. they don't come true. Sure. Well, I, I did um, have a question. You just reminded me. I, I, one more question that I'm being asked about the vaccines is that they projected a falsehood upon natural immunity that we now wonder, does it apply to the vaccines? In other words, they were saying that you just, um, you know, test a person and all oh, waning antibodies that means you're not immune and i've i've actually quoted you before on the show in my articles you've explained that very well why that's that's just sophomoric <laughs> it's just ridiculous to think of it that way but does that thought process legitimately apply to vaccines in other words a lot of people and i got a email from a listener um whose husband has kidney disease or his friend has kidney disease and they they just found zero antibodies um, post-vaccination. I forget how long ago he was vaccinated. Is that reason to concern? Or does the vaccine also work in the way that, no, you know, the B cells will produce more. You got the T cells. Um, or is that reason to be concerned? Slightly concerned. And, and here's the reason. The vaccine is against last year's virus, the Wuhan strain. So now we're seeing plenty of breakthrough, especially if you look at the data from the UK and Israel, as you quoted in the last couple of days, we're seeing plenty of breakthrough of the Delta through the Wuhan vaccination. So when you get that uh, vaccine, you're only forming a handful of antibodies against the spike. You're not, you're not forming antibodies against the whole virus. So a natural immunity, um, even if it was from last year's Wuhan strain, those proteins on the ball, the body of the virus, the, the nucleocapsid, the membrane, the envelope, those hundreds of proteins and the antibodies you form, those don't mutate as much. It's the spike that mutates. So if you lose your vaccine antibody, it may be slightly concerning. And in these post-vaccinated patients that still end up getting COVID, guess what? There's still early treatment that we've been talking about. Those early treatments are still just as effective because of their mechanisms against even a reinfected COVID patient. So that's another thing to keep in mind is I had the vaccine, I still got COVID. I'm like, well, bummer, but even so, we can still treat you early and keep you from getting severe symptoms or keep you out of the hospital. So some of those patients, yes, that's why we're seeing breakthrough because those antibodies aren't as strong uh, from a vaccine immunity. It's last year's strain. The virus is mutating like viruses always do, and it's going to continue to do so. Again, I hope it keeps weakening over time. 
But at the same time, we've got to just focus. The answer to this pandemic is test early, treat right away. Very simple. Treat the person, not lock down the person and focus on you being a liability to another person. That's what it was. Test early. Why? So we could isolate you, test and trace. No, test and treat. Focus on the per. That's really the thing. It's been the opposite. And then obviously we failed to stop it anyway. Just so ridiculous. Folks, I mean, I could go on forever, but my producer would be upset with me. Just, just hearing this presentation, Dr. Cole, it, this is a synopsis of a, a fraction of what's out there from just one doctor. Imagine if we had all of the doctors at HHS and all of the billions of dollars they put into this, um, you know, improving upon, exploring what you have. You don't have the money to do trials on this. They're all things, I don't like your trials. All right, well, you guys got the billions of dollars, so you're going to do trials, right? No, shut up, wear a mask. Well, okay, but I did. I still got it anyway. Well, shut up and get a vaccine. Well, I did. I got it anyway. I need treatment. Well, you know, it's not true. It, it, it does help. You're imagining it. You didn't get COVID. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's indefensible, and it's shocking. There's nothing right or left about this. There's nothing downplaying COVID. If anything, we're actually, you know, trying to be proactive about it um it is truly the biggest scandal the war on treatment the war on therapeutics the refusal to treat this dr cole we're gonna have you back soon as always thanks for the enlightening discussion and we are way out of time folks send me your questions comments concerns daniel harwitz at startmail.com told tomorrow god bless y'all and thank you for listening 